Andrei Soldatov. Welcome, welcome to Kremlin File. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is a real, real pleasure because today we're getting into uh, military and intelligence. And Andre, you couldn't be, right? The I mean, you're the perfect person. Perfect, exactly. perfect person <laughs> for this. But let me tell the audience why, because there may be some people that don't know you. Okay. Andre is a Russian investigative journalist, the co-founder of Argentura.ru, a watchdog of the Russian secret services activities. He's been covering secret services and terrorism since 1999. And he is co-author with Irina Borogan of The New Nobility, The Restoration of Russia's Security State and the Enduring Legacy of the KGB. Also, The Red Web, which I've read, uh, The Struggle Between Russia's Digital Dictators in the new online revolutionaries, and most recently, which I've also read, The Compatriots, okay, The Brutal and Chaotic History of Russia's Exiles, Emigres, and Agents Abroad. Okay, Andre, I think we got to just jump in because there's lots and lots to cover. Wait, okay. I just oh. want to add one more thing. He's yep. also a senior fellow at CEPA, Center for European Policy Analysis, and contributes to Moscow Times and various other international publications. Perfect. That's right. That's right. So let's jump in. Okay. Um, Andre, the picture that we have so far, okay, that everybody's been looking at is that Putin believed that this was going to be over right? In about, no, very, very little time. Um, Russian forces, we know, yes, (laughs) Russian forces, we know, have been blocked in the north and also in the south. And there are some military leaders that are visibly absent, okay, here, right? Uh, Olga, help me with some names. We have Gerasimov, for example, right? Zolotov. Kostyukov. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, the change in Russia's military strategy in Ukraine uh, was presented on March the 25th by Sergei Brudskoy. Okay, and he's down low, right, in the thing. So we need to know, Andre, what is happening you know, in the leadership? Is there a purge going on? What is the story right now? Well, I think the interesting thing about this war is that right from the beginning, it was very different from what we saw with uh, previous Putin's wars. Uh, In previous Putin's wars, uh, in Chechnya or in Georgia or in Syria, the chain of command was always uh, clear. Uh, We always had the thing, it's called uh, the Joint Group of Forces. And there was always a commander of this uh, uh, group, and which means that basically you always know who is in charge on the situation on the battlefield. That's not the case now. We do not know who is ultimately in charge of the situation on the battlefield. Wow. That's one thing. The other thing is that right from the beginning, and actually before the war started, Putin began attacking his own people in the security services, which is absolutely... I just wanted to remind you that the war started at this uh, now famous meeting of the Security Council when Vladimir Putin humiliated publicly his chief of the Foreign Intelligence Agency, the SVR, 
Sergei Narushkin. And it is still a mystery why Putin decided to make it so public. Mm. Then we got problems inside of uh, the FSB. We got at least two people, two FSB generals being placed under house arrest just in two weeks and a half in the war. Next, we got the National Guard in the trouble. Uh, we got the deputy head of the National Guard being asked, not very politely, to resign. And there are rumors that he's actually also under some criminal investigation. Mm. So we have a, a series of interesting, th- interesting developments which are very far from what we saw in previous Putin's wars. And it, I think it reflects many things. It reflects Putin's mindset right now. It's quite dif- different from what we saw before. But it also reflects um, how emotional Putin became uh, about Ukraine. It's not like for him, it looks like it's much more emotional than even Chechnya or Georgia or, of course, Syria. Interesting. Yeah, no, because I I, I mean, you even Shoigu, I mean, you know, I think the Western media the past few weeks um spent uh, time discussing Shoigu because he disappeared. They attempted to put him on screen for a minute and media yeah. Zona and a few others, you know, went frame by frame on the Zoom call. And they were like, no, this was pre-recorded. He's not there. And he's wearing the same clothes from, you know, a few weeks when he was last seen. And um, do you so you see a very like, uh, you know, big strain between Putin, his military generals, FSB, SVR, GRU. That's what yes. you're seeing. Yes, exactly. And you're absolutely right. It's also about the military. And Shoigu was uh, sent there for almost two weeks. And he's the only public face of his war we have, as I said before, because we do not know the name of the guy who is in charge of a situation on a battlefield. It means it's everything about the, the military effort in, in Ukraine is about Shoigu. And uh, hmm. you cannot have the Minister of Defense and uh, such a public figure as Shoigu being absent for two weeks. Now he reappeared. And uh, again, he still has a long face. And uh, lots of people telling me in Moscow that Putin is not really happy with him. So yes, it's actually it's about basically every security service or, uh, or the armed force we have, and Putin is unhappy with all of them. Wow. And speaking of Chechnya, uh, what do you make of Kadyrov being promoted to uh, mm. lieutenant colonel? Who I mean, Kadyrov yeah. over this past month, it's been extremely weird because he keeps putting face, oh not face, TikTok videos. videos. Of showing that he's in Ukraine, then but he bounces not. back to to Chechnya to meet Petrushev, and then he's back in Ukraine. So, what do you make of this situation? The role that now Kadyrov is playing in this, you know, uh, war. Well, what we need to remember that uh, at least officially, Kadyrov is part of the National Guard, not of the army, and I think it's part of uh, the effort of the National Guard. After they were again humiliated by this, um, uh, by the ocean of the deputy commander, that the National Guard wanted to do something to boost the morale of the National Guard and mm-hmm. also to convince Putin that everything is fine. And actually, the morale inside of the National Guard is not really great. Uh, just last week, we got this news that 12 officers of the National Guard 
refused to go to Ukraine. Mm. They just said, look, because we do not have foreign passports and we are supposed to act uh, only inside the country, so it's it makes it absolutely illegal for us to go to Ukraine and to fight there, which is quite ironic because these people, they never had any uh, thoughts about going to Syria or to Georgia, and they, they never expressed any doubts about mm. legality when they were asked to bitten protesters on the streets. Now, all of a sudden, they're all about the, the constitutional rights. Hmm, that's, so- that's one thing. And Kadyrov, of course, and his Chechens, they, are, they have a horrible reputation in the country and abroad. And I think the idea of the government and of the National Guard was to, was to send this scary message that these Chechens are here. Uh, please, hmm. like, uh, uh, retreat. And we see it didn't actually work out, but nevertheless, they keep doing this, again, because I think they believe that uh, Kadyrov's presence might help to boost the morale. Okay. I have one more question. Sorry, Mo. Speaking <laughs> of ahead. boosting morale... <laughs> questions. No, hi. I mean, it's yeah. a pleasure to have There's Andre here. I could, I, could, I could pick his brain all day. Speaking of boosting morale, there were reports um, a few weeks ago that... Uh, Kadyrov said Chechens to go behind the military units and if they see any signs of weakness or defection to mm. eliminate Russian military um, forces or the, the soldiers within those units. So, I mean, are, is there truth to that report? And is, I mean, is it boosting morale or are they just sending like the fear of God into the Russian military that if you even think of defecting or surrendering, not defecting... Yeah, that that Kadyrov's, uh, uh, you know, Chechens will take care of you. Well, uh, I'm slightly skeptical that uh, it's exactly what happened, but of course, this kind of message, uh, well, is not really something you want to hear if you are already in Ukraine fighting or thinking what you need, uh, what you're going to do. But it looks to me that. That is quite interesting that we have this idea of the Chechens being such a formidable force, mm. but mm. it looks like actually they are used right now mostly in propaganda. Uh, we all saw this footage made by the Chechens, and uh, at least what I can get from the Ukrainians analyzing this, uh, this footage, they say repeatedly that this footage is taken in places where there is no fighting taking place, it's all actually quiet, and it, I think it's uh, on the line with what we, we hear uh, from Moscow about the p- possible potential involvement of Syrians in this war. Mm-hmm. Militarily speaking, it doesn't make any sense, because the Syrians are not incorporated in the Russian military chain of, uh, chain of command. Uh, the language is not Russian. I mean, you cannot actually communicate with them properly. And nobody actually ever see uh, Syrians and the Russians and the Chechens uh, uh, fighting alongside, I mean, in a, in a proper combat. But if you think about propaganda, that makes some sense. You just scare people yeah. that you can get on veil and some crazy people with crazy habits of, uh, and, and all of that. And it looks like, uh, again, the Chechens are there mostly because of that, not because of the uh, military uh, performance. Hmm. 
Okay. Interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Very, very so. And also, just circling back for a second from what you were saying before, Andre, uh, what we're seeing then a lot is what you were saying even before we started that nobody knows who's in control, right? And there's no ironclad control over, right? What is going on, no, on the ground. I wanted to ask a question about before, no, the renewed hostilities after, no, before uh, February the 21st to the 24th, that period there. Who was collecting intelligence on the ground in Ukraine of the Russian forces? This is for our listeners who know very little, okay, about who is that collects this information. And because, you know, if Putin believed that it was going to be something that was going to happen very quickly and that governments were going to fold, you know, the regional governments were going to surrender, there must have been information or he was being fed information or he wanted to believe certain kind of information. So who collects the information on the ground, Andre? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, right now, Russia has uh, three major intelligence agencies. So you have the SVR, political intelligence, you have the GRU, military intelligence, and also you have the foreign intelligence branch of the FSB. All of them were involved and were active uh, in Ukraine. They just had different objectives. So the military okay. intelligence, they were mostly in charge of uh, collecting data about uh, the military infrastructure of the Ukrainian army. Uh, the SVR, the political intelligence, was mostly about identifying, say, uh, Western presence in Ukraine, because they are mostly about uh, about about NATO, CIA, and all right. that thing. Right. But the FSB's foreign intelligence branch was much more active because they had two objectives. One was to collect intelligence about what actually is going on in Ukraine, politically speaking. Okay. The other thing is that the same branch of the FSB was also in charge of cultivating political groups in Ukraine, which might be supportive of, uh, of the Russian invasion. So they are not only spies, but they are political operators. And I think this is the information of this agency, which actually was uh, given to Putin, and that had a big impact on his uh, uh, thinking about Ukraine. But unfortunately, it's not only about that. Of course, you have this problem with, uh, with the guy in the Kremlin who also believes that he is the best intelligence officer in the world. Mm. And he knows better than anyone else okay. what is going on in Ukraine. So if you're going to challenge him about, say, uh, the situation in Ukraine, that would be risky for you because he knows better, obviously. Mm. And we all know and we all have known that for years that he has very strong opinions about Ukraine. He's writing articles about the history of Ukraine, and he made it absolutely clear that he doesn't believe that Ukraine is a proper state, which means, militarily speaking, that if, say, the Russian army invades, well, this dysfunctional state would collapse immediately. So it, I... To be honest, I have problems imagining that there is just even one person in the FSB who would be brave enough to go to, to come to Putin and say, look, maybe they are not that dysfunctional. Uh, I think it's a big challenge. And uh, so it's not only the failure of the intelligence agencies, 
It's also about this guy in the Kremlin. Okay, who won't believe it? Exactly. Do you, just do you think um, since the war and since there is so much badness, I mean, we are seeing more casualties right now since probably the Soviet uh, time decade in uh, Afghanistan, and we've seen more casualties in less than a month. On top of, I mean, it's just failure after failure, uh, you know, military equipment. One got confiscated, Ukrainians confiscated it. It was like a intelligence gathering vehicle. And they're like, oh, we're going to give this yeah. as a gift to the Americans. Who is it? Do you think he's getting the proper information of what's happening on the ground? Like, is there anyone brave enough to tell him what is going on? Because we know, or at least we suspect, and you probably know more, that Putin doesn't watch TV. He doesn't, you know, go through social media. He's unlike our former guy here. Yeah. You know, that he... um. It's completely isolated, like from from you know, uh, uh, called external sources. So, do you think there are people brave enough to tell him every time there's a general killed or a unit that you know surrendered or you know, like what's happening on the ground? Well, I think right now we already have several signs, at least that uh, actually he's not properly uh, briefed about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, three weeks ago, he said that he didn't know about the involvement of conscripts in this war. And to be honest, I believe him. It looks like hmm. he was not aware and the military, they, uh, they wanted to hide this information from him. And now we see that at least there is some effort to stop these soldiers from being, uh, being sent to Ukraine. So it looks like at least uh, here he was not properly briefed by the military. <clears throat> but the second thing is much more important, and it is absolutely astonishing. For instance, we started talking about bad intelligence which led to this war. But the thing about bad intelligence and the real war, that when you have these two things like collapsing into one another, I mean, when you have the reality hit the ground, <clears throat> so the bad intelligence actually uh, hit the ground, and when the invasion actually started, it became absolutely clear for everybody that the tactics chosen before the war didn't work. What was absolutely astonishing for me that for weeks and weeks after the, the start of this war, we didn't see any big changes in the Russian military strategy. Actually, we got some changes on the last week in the month after the war started. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. Yeah. If you think that you would be greeted, greeted with flowers or maybe some political groups would, I don't know, uh, get rid of uh, Zelensky, <coughs> well, when it never happened, yeah. you need to change into, I don't know, adjust somehow. <laughs> Again, it happened or it's happening <laughs> only now, which I think is a sign that Putin was not properly briefed about all these uh, things actually happening in Ukraine. Hmm. Hmm. That is interesting. No, yeah, because yeah. it's, it's, it's uh, like, you know, bizarre <laughs> because uh, Andre's right. They haven't changed military strategy. They continue, you know, going down a path only until a few days that they announce some kind of shift, but um, down a path of basically self-annihilation. <laughs> well, is there another problem then? I don't, I'm thinking more beyond, you know, um, because 
when you have an army on the ground, you have to feed it. You have to provide all the logistics. You have to provide all of these things. There could be things behind the scenes you know, that are not getting to the front. They, they simply can't change tactics all that quickly for some, you know, for some other reason. That's what I'm thinking. I'm just thinking out loud. Yeah, it's a, it's actually it's a good thing, but the problem is that actually the tactics they stick to was more demanding in terms of logistics than mm. if they just change it. For instance, they keep sending these columns deep into the into Ukraine, which doesn't make sense because, as you said, they, these people they need to be fed and they need to be provided with uh, with. Uh, with with gas and and ammunition and everything. So why to keep, I mean, keep sending them deep into the country, which is really, really big. It's not Chechnya, it's much bigger. All uh, these distances are really, really, really important here. I mean, logistically speaking, it's a nightmare. Uh, So it looks like it was, yeah, it was something slightly different. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. to remind our viewers, because a lot of people, you know, we hear Russia's aggressions everywhere Chechnya, Syria, uh, Ukraine 2014, Georgia, um, you know, everywhere, Libya, Central Africa. But this probably, I honestly, well, you would have to go back so many decades to ever like remember even an operation of this size. Putin himself has never ordered an operation of this size to take over the Mm. second largest country in Europe. I mean, this, you know, you would have to go to maybe Afghanistan to be some kind of, you know, comparable. But before his tactics were always to take away pieces, you know, a piece of Georgia, a piece of Ukraine. Um, uh, Chechnya was, uh, you know, Putin was just coming into power. So that was a complete different story. And the West, you know, kind of looked at it as more of a domestic issue for whatever reason didn't make sense. So this is like even just militarily, like this is, Ukraine is huge. I mean, it's the second largest country in Europe. And for him to attempt to just walk in and take the whole country over, you know, well, I guess we see now. Well, we see how that worked out exactly. Andre, there um historically has always been because this is your area and you've studied it forever. And like uh, there's always been like this friction between GRU, SVR, FSB, mm. you know, sometimes they even kind of secretly, you know, are excited if the other agency <laughs> fails and makes mistakes. What is happening now? Is it yeah. like, are you seeing signs of like it getting even worse? Because I mean, right now, look, it looks like, you know, everyone's head is on a chopping block. Are they now kind of more trying to protect their own agencies by maybe pushing it onto FSB or SVR? Mm-hmm. Are you seeing more divisions like growing within the three agencies? Well, actually, I see a lot of confusion. And right now, it's even it's getting even more complicated because it's not about three agencies, but four, because the National Guard also mm-hmm. has its foreign intelligence, not foreign, but intelligence department, which is in charge of uh, collecting tactical intelligence. And of course, tactical intelligence is what is needed right yeah. now. And it looks like there are big problems uh, in sharing this information between the agencies and with the troops. Uh, it's a nightmare how to make uh, this information, uh, this intelligence available for commanders uh, who are fighting. And that is one of the reasons why we got so many 
uh, general skilled because we cannot get this information and we need to go and see by themselves and they get killed just because of that. Is that because it's compromised? The communications on the ground are compromised? I had read something about that, that uh, they're no, not it looks being like, scrambled or not. Yeah, that's partly true, but it, these communications were not scrambled for a reason. And the reason that nobody actually thought that uh, it would be needed for a month that's a okay. problem. So they were okay. not ready for that. Uh, and they are struggling with, uh, with mobile phones now because they think it might be more reliable, all of that. Now, they just now, they started like supplying uh, communications devices to the troops. But again, it takes time. And also, you need to know how to use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are so many problems now. They need to sort of to solve when they are fighting, which is, which is not really easy. Is, no. No. Would that be why they um, said that they're shifting their strategies now to just uh, Eastern Ukraine, kind of more like to f- fix the logistical errors and regroup and kind of, you know, supply their military and mm. before, and then they might come back to Kiev, although they're still bombing Kiev. So that doesn't. Yeah. It's uh, to be honest, when I heard of this uh, new explanation mm. of uh, that, what was our plan? You just didn't get it. <laughs> I, to be honest, it's it's such an interesting thing because it's something you always see with the Russian security services and the military. They always think tactically. So they have a problem, they have a solution. They think, okay, to achieve this objective, we need to do that and this. And they don't have a, they don't think about the bigger picture. That just because they, if we assume for a moment that that was an, an original plan mm-hmm. uh, to like, pacify Donbass by, uh, by attacking Kiev, mm-hmm. well, you destroyed your economy by doing yeah. this because most of these sanctions were imposed on Russia because you attacked Kiev. If, yeah. say, you would limit your actions on Donbass, I'm very skeptical about Europe. And maybe France and other countries would say, well, that's what we expected them to do. Yes, we would have some sanctions, but with some limits. And only because we attacked the entire country, everybody got really angry and said, look, you cannot do that. So, I mean, tactically, people Mm -hmm. in the Kremlin might say, yeah, we are achieving our tactical uh, objectives, but they are destroying the country. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense at all, Mm-mm. at all. Um, Andre, I have a question actually about Abramovich, okay? <laughs> Which is, no, because also the confusion that you're talking about is there's also confusion over this story, right? Because <laughs> we have the British and uh, the Ukrainians who actually don't say anything. No, they're, they're not even acknowledging well, it. Well, no, the Ukrainians... Uh, What's the, the Ukraini- story, <laughs> No, the Ukrainians say that Abramo. Okay, so let's uh, back up a drop. Oh. Roman Abram- Abramovich is an oligarch who allegedly was close to Putin these days. I, I guess he could, you know, he's somewhat close to Putin, but he's not going to make any final decisions. He somehow got involved in negotiations in order, you know, to end this war. And... um then during negotiations, the first week of uh, March, he got um, supposedly poisoned with two Ukrainian negotiators. 
He ended up going to Turkey there. He was in Turkey. That is definite. We don't know why, but there yeah. we did see him at the Turkish airport sometime mid-March. And uh, then the story was he was poisoned with uh, Ukrainian negotiators inside of Ukraine. U.S. says it was environmental things that happened behind the poisoning. Um, Ukrainians say nothing ever happened. <laughs> and then Abramovich's people say something happened. Something happened. Saying what happened. We just but don't know what Symptoms were equivalent to a chemical poisoning. They had peeling skin, red eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it clearly whatever it was wasn't enough to kill them or make them extremely, you know, sick. And that's it. Andre can uh, fill in <laughs> the rest fill of Fill in us. anything that <laughs> you can give us, Andre. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's such an interesting story. Well, of course, I'm not a chemical expert, but uh, what I heard from uh, in yesterday and today is that the symptoms uh, described, they are quite consistent with what was experienced by uh, at least several activists in Russia, including mm. uh, Pyotr Verzilov, who is uh, one of the most prominent Russian activists, and uh, he is a brain behind Pussy Riot. Uh, so he is uh, prominent, and he was poisoned in 2018, uh, and he survived only because he was uh, taken to Germany very quickly. Uh, so he's fine. And the thing here is, the Russian security services, they love poisoning. It's they think. Uh, we did a book about it. I mean, the, the competitors is partly about poisoning yeah. and why they love it. Because it's such a good thing. It's such, it's, it's so, it's much better than a bullet. If you use your gun, uh, <laughs> you just uh, eliminate a threat and that's about it. When you use your poison, you're not on the eliminated threat. You scare lots of people around. You send a message. You, sometimes you blame the victim because you can say that, no, 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 nobody poisoned anybody. This guy, he got drunk or I don't know what. And it's all about him and his problem. And we heard this a lot when Navalny was poisoned and when Anna Politkovska, Russian journalist, was poisoned in 2004 and uh, Barrel survived. So it's such a good thing for the for the security services from their point of view. Uh, and sometimes the intention is not to kill, but to send a message. Just remind some sort of reminder that mm. if your loyalty is in question, well, that is uh, not a very subtle reminder that you need to stay loyal. Uh, that opens to so many, uh, well, Theories, what actually could go wrong with uh, Abramovich and why they decided to attack him. Uh, But again, I think it just reflects uh, all this confusion we have. Yeah. And and, uh, again, this confusion is what makes this war so different from all the previous wars Putin ever had. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a message, we would say, I guess this was a message to Abramovich. Is that the idea? I think so, and and maybe and maybe also uh, to other rich people who are, as we mm. know, now trying to mm. many of them trying to uh, to uh, to leave Russia and to find some new standing because we need to decide for themselves where we are actually in this war. Uh, there is no say 
uh, gray area anymore. You cannot say that you are supportive of the Kremlin and at the same time you are liberal. I mean, it's, it's yeah. it doesn't work yeah. anymore. I yeah. think. Yeah. And lots of people they need to 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 say something about where they stand. And uh, so maybe it was something like that. And I remember when we researched these books of compatriots, and I wanted to understand why uh, they used Novichok repeatedly. And they, I mean, it was absolutely uh, that it's, it was a kind of trademark of the Russian security services. And usually you think that these guys, they're supposed to do something in secret. And here you have Novichok, and everybody understands that's about the Russian security services. So why? Mm. And lots of people in Moscow and abroad, including some very rich people, told me the same thing. But now they, they took it as a signal that the rules are changing, but it applies to them as well. And they need to think about it very cautiously and uh, carefully uh, and how to adjust to this new reality. So there's real fear. There's real fear. Yes. Right now that's going on. That's very interesting. Very also a lot of indications, signs of weakness of all the the um Russian intelligence officers across Europe, you know, in so many capitals that have been sent home as well. You no, know, in the past few days there were we were talking about this Olga before we, we got on, where there at least yesterday there were four capitals that sent home, you no, know, uh, a whole bunch. So there are all these little signs of um of let's say real weakness and also fear that's going on right now and it's, it's incredible to, to be honest it affects so many things uh i hope that one day the book would be written about the real uh the role this poisoning actually played in all and in, in the Kremlin policies for instance mm. things which i cannot explain even now but we Here's some signs that, for instance, the foreign ministry, we have this Lavrov guy, mm. and he seems to be so confident and so sure of himself. But we know from many sources that he wanted to, yeah. uh, to be out of this game for years. And at the same time, for at least five years, uh, there were several cases when top-level Russian diplomats, they just died. For some unclear yeah. reasons, like they just died. Remember this guy Churkin, who was so visible yes. in the United yeah. Nations in New York. He just died, and you think, yeah, he had bad yeah. age. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think that when you have this kind of thing in play, and uh, you have the Russian officials thinking about it constantly, because we also we do not have an answer, but they need now to think about, take it into account when they plan to say something to Putin, or they need to plan their next career move, this is taken into account right now. Oh, wow. And to add, Cherkin was actually the one who, um, well, I wouldn't say recruited, but was part of the process of making Trump see the Soviet Union in a favorable light in um, ah. 87. Ooh. So uh, Trump had lunch with Cherkin and like Lauder and um, Dubinin at the time who... Uh, came to uh, became the 
Soviet ambassador to UN. So, I mean, it was interesting with Cherkin. And then there was like literally Andre So Right. Oh my God. I remember yeah. waiting was- like every, like, I don't know, it was like a spate of just ambassadors and diplomats dying Turkey, like all across one after another. And I'm like, what is going on? Yeah. <laughs> wasn't there, king? yeah, wasn't there, was it Turkey or India? There was another diplomat who also died a young oh my god guy. there were like about yeah. nine of them or ten in a yeah, row yeah yeah yeah, yeah yeah i remember i remember that yeah wow 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 yeah no it it, <laughs> it could also and explain and, that's a very interesting point andre in fact yeah. that's a really really interesting perspective and for people who don't understand and andre can fill us in more on this um the kremlin is the one who created uh putin is the one who created these oligarchs so he's the one who, you know, they have their wealth because of Russia, because of Putin. So he can at any time eliminate it as yeah. well. And and now you see even with this war, like Fridman had come out very in a weird balance. Avin came out, which actually made me laugh because he was complaining his assets were frozen. He's never mm. <laughs> driven a car before. Mm. How is he going to pay for housekeeping? And and then, you know, but he did make a clear indication he does not want to go back to Russia because um, he knows, you know, that he'll be trapped there. But mm. right, Andre, Putin is the one who made these oligarchs. I mean, it was this, his system who, who, you know, kind of took away the competition and put these... Yes, and uh, yes, of course, we had this uh, first generation of the oligarchs in the 1990s. But the thing which we need to remember that Putin always was really good at uh, playing with these guys and finding new incentives uh, for them to stay loyal to the Kremlin. And that became a really big thing after 2014, after the invasion of Crimea. Because lots of these people... They corporations, they lost many contracts in the West. Mm. And what Putin did, and that was really smart of him, he offered them uh, contracts, state contracts, mostly military. And uh, in five years' time, many of these guys, they became part of the Russian military industrial complex. So when they say to Western journalists that they, well, they don't understand why they got uh, under sanctions, they have no say in the Kremlin, blah, 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 that is partly true. Of course, their political influence diminished, but their role in rebuilding the Russian military industrial complex is huge. And that we need to remember. Now let's take a break and talk about our partner, Athletic Greens. I started taking Athletic Greens because, you know, who hasn't put on COVID pounds and it's become part of my morning routine. It's one scoop in the water and I shake it up and I start my day that way and I'm feeling so much better. I sleep better. It has all the vitamins, 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. They send you the whole kit with the bottle so you don't have to do anything except pour one scoop into the bottle they provide add water and shake it up to make it easy athletic greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immunosupporting vitamin d and five packs five travel packs with your first purchase all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash kremlin file 
And again, that's athleticgreens.com slash Kremlin file to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This podcast is sponsored by the Jordan Harbinger Show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening now. Okay, folks, you really got to check out this podcast. He brings in guests from all different kinds of fields. And in one particular episode, the latest one actually, called Ukraine's Warfront with Chris Miller, who's the former Secretary of Defense, and Brandon Wheeler of the Freedom Research Foundation. And I was completely captivated. They went first from Poland and into Ukraine to actually sit down and speak with President Zelensky. It's their perspective on the whole thing. And it's absolutely incredible. And every Friday, Jordan also releases a Feedback Friday episode to respond to listener questions covering everything from conventional questions like navigating a hostile co-worker to crazy, insane questions like a listener finding out if he was unknowingly a sugar daddy. So folks, check out this podcast. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. There was an FSB list that was released with 620 FSB yeah. agents. And that had their, you know, mm -hmm. uh, phone numbers and, and divisions and a lot of personal information. Uh, what do you make of that list that came out? Yeah. Yeah, this list was released by the military intelligence of Ukraine, mm -hmm. GUR, as far as I remember. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, it is an interesting list. But the problem with this list that the departments, the sections, the, the directorates are not mentioned. So it's really difficult to grasp right now uh, uh, how important it is for the FSB. Uh, it looks like there are some people who are not really important, but also there are people who are quite important. And I think it is an interesting game we have here because we this war started, and actually, yeah, it's, it started with U.S. intelligence making a bold decision uh, to make public lots of intelligence stuff about the Russian uh, security services and uh, uh, Russian military plans, uh, which was absolutely un unprecedented. What we see here is that the Ukrainians were using public space to convey something to the Russian security services. Mm. And it looks like only the Ukrainians and the Russians actually understand what is going on here. Because again, <laughs> okay. they're talking this, to each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But <laughs> using the public space, which yeah. is a new thing. But usually for this kind of conversations, uh, they, mm -hmm. they're quite secret. We have these meetings some there in some good countries usually. I mean, that's at least what we, uh, what we uh, remember mm -hmm. from the Cold War. Uh, but it's not anymore. <laughs> They're all using public space now, uh, exchanging yeah. these messages, uh, which is very intriguing, but a bit annoying because we do not understand uh, mm. how important it is. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Well, <laughs> it's true because I took a look at the list and I said, oh, okay, it doesn't have any countries. Okay, I'm going to have to go through like each name. You're not going to get no, it. To try to, to try to connect the real it with some... either. No, exactly. There's on top so, of all of that, right? Because I'm yeah. thinking, okay, let's see what I can pull out for Italy They're here and nothing. see if there's anybody in Italy. <laughs> it's you like know? looking at a bunch of, uh, of uh, names like on bank a list. account numbers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like a uh, hundred bank account numbers and none, that's it. Like it, yeah. that's... 
Yeah. <laughs> it has. So it's like no. or anyone who's not in this, like it will, it's like okay, names <laughs> that are Let's see uh, one is. of several variations. <laughs> <laughs> All right, to finish up, what do you think is inside? Like, what's uh, the chatter inside? Like, do you see? People around Putin getting aggravated. Are they even able to get meetings these days with Putin, or is everything via Zoom? Um, like, what do you see happening? Like, what's Putin's future direction? Uh, there are two things which I think are really interesting. First, there's a striking difference uh, between what we see now and what we saw in 2014. In 2014, uh, Russian bureaucracy, including the military and the security services, were on the same page uh, about the invasion. They all mm-hmm. were in favor, they supported Putin and believed that he did the right thing. They, they're all united. That was mm-hmm. absolutely clear. Uh, now, lots of people, lots of people inside, they say something like, yeah, we believe that something should be done about Ukraine, but the way it's done is not really good because it's, it's not going according to plan. And all of them now, they blame just one guy, Putin, mm. uh, which is uh, quite unprecedented, because Putin was always quite popular within the bureaucracy. And now he was feared, of course, but also quite popular. And now there is one guy who is in charge of everything, and he's like, and everybody blame him. Mm. And that created distance between the Russian bureaucracy, even security services bureaucracy, and Putin, which is might be something. Hmm. The second thing which I find interesting is this attack on the FSB started with something about uh, misusing government funds that mm-hmm. they look, we give you lots of money to, mm-hmm. I don't know, corrupt. Uh, political parties in Ukraine, mm-hmm. they never deliver, so where is money, this kind of thing. But now it's developing into something much more political because now there is a talk that uh, the military counterintelligence uh, started looking into the activities of the department of the FSB, and uh, the military counterintelligence is usually about hunting mode. So it looks like a lot of people in the Kremlin now remember how accurate the U.S. intelligence was before mm-hmm. the war, mm-hmm. and they started looking for, for a spy, for a source uh, for the U.S. intelligence. And of course, they, uh, it's quite understandable why they started looking for a spy inside of the FSB, because actually, in the Russian security services bureaucracy, this department of the FSB, which is in charge of operations in Ukraine, is also in charge of uh, maintaining uh, official contacts with the CIA. So you start looking in, a, in an obvious place where people, just by definition, they, they have some contacts with the CIA. But of course, it's really bad for, for the climate inside because if, like, if you mm. see everybody looking for a spy, you think that probably it's better to be really cautious with what you say, what you report, mm. what kind of stories you share with your friends, what kind of anecdote about Putin you share, because it's not the time for doing this. So I would say that right now the morale inside is not really high. Yeah, and they're all looking over their shoulder. 
And at and the same time, Tad, Ukrainians have had, I mean, they keep <laughs> intercepting and getting intelligence also, which, you know, yeah. I think uh, Russia is fearing that it's being leaked from inside, right? The services. That, yeah. 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 Like they uncovered that, um, that group that was going, what is it? A group of, um, of FSB, a hit squad or something that was in uh, at the Slovakia-Hungarian border, if I'm not mistaken. It was a group of agents, or there yeah. was one FSB, but they had hired people, I think. And they said that they got that intelligence, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that it was leaked, if I'm not mistaken. That's what the Ukrainians say, but I don't know. This is the story. It's I don't fascinating. Know. It spy is. Games. You can it's go like, on and on and on and on. It's great. Right, it's great. Uh, Andre. It's like the spy wars between uh, Soviet Union yeah. and U.S. And now you're seeing spy, a trial. Well, now four. You see the British, uh, U.S., Ukrainian, and Russian spy wars now. <laughs> and now inside Russia, there's more. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's interesting, but just really horrible. I'm, uh, I mean, no. I, I'm I'm a Russian, and I feel so. I mean, really, really horrible about what is going on, and uh, to be honest, just emotionally, it's really difficult. And I cannot. One thing I do not understand is every second family in Russia has some relatives in Ukraine, including my family. And I think I don't quite understand why so many people support it. I don't. I don't. I don't get it. I don't get it either. I'm half. Russian, half Ukrainian, I mean, and you have a lot of cases like that where you have someone who is from both countries and it's just like, it's, I I don't, I I don't have words. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know, but I don't know how clear, I mean, I I don't know. (laughs) That's one thing I don't know. I have no words for anything. You know, there's a lot of people, if you you think about, this is, this is something that needs to be studied, I guess, in the future. Uh, understanding the impact of information on a certain, I don't know, at a certain level. I don't buy that. Years. I don't buy that because well, there's there enough, people, there's there enough videos coming out. There are people calling their family yes. members yes. and saying, I am in a bomb shelter. No, no, like no, no, this no. One I'm not discounting that. I don't that. buy it. I'm not yeah, discounting no, no. that. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is that, for example, even in the United States, you have people that have evidence that their loved ones died of COVID, but they don't want to accept it. Okay, that's what yeah, I'm talking COVID about. Yeah, but COVID is a silent certain... killer. Yeah, COVID is a silent killer. I mean, here, you like there are images of children being pulled out of rubble. I mean, it's a complete different visual than going to hospital and, you know, and and being dying and being attributed to COVID. And then the person will say, oh, but they had something else, you know. Here you're seeing like, I mean, um, uh, the the images I've seen, I will. It's like I can't mm-hmm. even. I don't have words. I mean, yeah, you no. see, like, uh, uh, like a room filled with just bodies tossed on top of each other. Kids. I mean, this is and this is some of these are getting to Russia because there is that close. Like Andre said, there's a very sure. very close, you know, connection between families and Ukrainians living in Russia, Russians living in Ukraine, family members in both countries. So. Yeah. I, I don't know. I uh, it's an open, yeah. No, it's something I think that uh, in the future a lot a lot of people will be looking at to see, you know, what uh what it is. What's the mood inside of Russian, right? Like what do you think? Is it penetrating? Anything penetrating? Yeah. Anyone? 
Yeah, of course. Uh, well, uh, some social media are still available. YouTube is still available. And my relatives and friends, they rely on YouTube because now we have mm. lots of Russian journalists who just fled the country. They launched their channels and they report news on, on YouTube. Also, Telegram is available and it's not blocked. Uh, and even if you get something blocked, still uh, you have access to VPN services and uh, mm -hmm. it gets you where you want it. So it's fine. But what I see and what people telling me, and it is really <laughs> frustrating and to be honest, horrible, is that it looks like now the number of people who are supportive of the war is actually increasing. Mm. I don't quite understand that. Why? I just, I just, I don't know. And it looks like sometimes you think it's all about information control, but sometimes it's not. Just I, I keep thinking about this interview, which was published in a, in Komsomolska Pravda, pro, pro, pro Kremlin media tabloid, uh, which is widely popular, like millions of, uh, of, of views and all that. And it's a print newspaper one of the most popular newspapers in the country. And uh, just two weeks ago, the former head of uh, ground troops of uh, the Russian army was asked to provide some explanations about why they stalled. And uh, he said that, look, and he started providing some explanations about the operation in Mariupol. And he said, look, we're not going to do something like the Germans did in Stalingrad. So that is why. And then he did some he provided some explanations and you think, wait a second, you have a general of the Russian army right now comparing the Russian army with the German army attacking Stalingrad. It's insane. Yeah. You made this war, uh, I mean, the whole thing about this war was all about fighting Nazis. And now you mm -hmm. have a Russian general in the Russian programming media comparing the Russian army with... <laughs> If the German yeah. army attacking Stalingrad and you find it and you think it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Andre, where can people find your work? And thank you so much for coming. I mean, I literally could I keep you here for, for, I know. <laughs> for hours and hours picking every single, you know, thing, because I, I mean, you're an expert on all of this. Where can people find your work? Uh, well, on the side of SIPA, of course, and, uh, and the Washington Post and Foreign Affairs, uh, yeah, mostly yeah, in these places. And also, of course, we have our website, Agentur.ru, for people who actually read Russian. So we try to keep it uh, updated because we think it's of utmost importance to... We launched this website 22 years ago, actually, in, in September 2000, when Putin just became president, uh, because we believed in the idea of transparency for the Russian security services. And we still believe it's important. And maybe now it's even more relevant than ever. Yeah. Uh, so yes, our website is blocked in Russia, but VPN services are available. So the website is available. And uh, yeah, that's the way you can find what, uh, what Perfect. Uh, I'm writing. Okay, we'll put a link to your website yeah, and we'll definitely. add the SIPA link and everything and else everything. in your twitter link of course <laughs> thank you great 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 hey everybody if you enjoyed this podcast don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website kremlinfile.com this is a bunker crew media production hosted by olga lautman and me monica marra with executive producers marley clements jack bryan grant de simone 
Ben, Brett, and Jordy Mycellus of Midas Media, with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts.